why can't you be more like your brother? You ever hear that? Um, I, I don't think I ever actually heard that. I think that my parents, um, in, in a more healthy way, played the other side of the coin in favor of my brother when they would tell him from time to time, uh, don't you ever do what he did. My brother was younger than me, and I think he, uh, I think he took note and spared himself some trouble as a result. Uh, but I wonder if you've heard, why can't you be like your brother or like your sister, like your sibling? Maybe you've heard it with words. Uh, maybe you have had it communicated to you just with an expression on a parent's face. Somehow, uh, we all recognize that phrase. Somehow it registers with us, whether we heard it or not. Maybe that's because it's, it's so common, because parents have found it to be really, really effective. Right? What's the normal response when a child hears, why can't you be more like your brother? Maybe something like, you know, Dad, I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed that out to me. I've never really thought about it that way before. Uh, but from now on, I am resolved to work as hard as I can to be as much like my brother as it's possible for me to be. And then you will be the happy parent of two high-functioning, intolerable, sanctimonious jerks. <laughs> then won't you be happy? When the other brother... Uh, here's a parent say of the good brother, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The other brother uh, doesn't hear good news. It doesn't, it doesn't make things better. It's always a loss for the other sibling, for the sibling that's being compared. Because he or she knows that in some deeply important way, the good brother is not actually good. Not good enough. They know that the other brother is at some level here not to give, but to take. The, the, the other brother, the brother that's being asked the question, actually has an answer to the question, to the question, why can't you be more like your brother? And the answer to the question, whether it's recognized or not, is because he does nothing to make my relationship with you better. He does nothing to make my relationship with you better. He doesn't help me to trust you. Uh, he doesn't cause you to approve of me. He doesn't put me in a relationship of trust with you, he doesn't, he doesn't do what a truly good brother would do, at least not well enough. So the story has been throughout human history until now, with one exception. To us, a child is born, Isaiah has said, and Luke has echoed that language, to us a son is given. A son who is a savior, a son who came to rescue us, a, a true son 
who will trust the Father for us, who will fully trust the Father for us, who will both model that for us, and by fully trusting the Father with his entire life, will bring us into a place that no other good brother, no other good sister has ever been able to accomplish. Jesus, we'll see in Luke 3.21 through 4.13, will live as the true Son of God, and as the new Son of Man for us and with us. We're going to see that through Jesus' baptism. We're going to see it through Jesus' genealogy. And we're going to see it through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now that is a bit of an extended passage, and so we're not going to be able to look in detail at each one. But I, I, I think that those three descriptions of Jesus all fit together in a really tight way to help us to see Jesus as the true Son of God, the one that God has good reason to look at and say, I fully approve of you, and to see him as the new Son of Man in such a way that God can look at us and say, I approve of you on his account, so that this good brother does something for us that no other good brother or sister has ever been able to do. This is a true son who will trust the Father for us and bring us back into that trusting relationship. I'm going to read the text in parts this time. I'm going to make the judgment call not to read the whole genealogy when we get to it. I hope that I can, I hope that I can give you some sense of the value of the genealogy in such a way that, that on your time, you might just take the five minutes that it takes to read it slowly and find yourself connected to Christ and all that he does for us in it. First, the first section where we see the true son of God in Luke 3, uh, starting in verse 21. By the way, if you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, you will find this passage starting on page 859. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What's Jesus doing here? In this place where he hears this affirmation from the father that nobody else hears, at least nobody else hears independently. What's Jesus doing here? What's he doing in the water? What's the water for? This is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus needs no repentance. He needs no forgiveness of sins, but we need him. And we need him with us and for us And so he comes all the way down into the water that represents the people's need for cleansing and associates himself fully with them. He comes as the true good brother, as the true older brother. He enters all the way into the depths of the results of their sin and the need that comes from it. That's where we find him. When the father says to him, you are my beloved son, 
with you I am well pleased. And for the first and only time, we hear that in a way that gives the rest of us hope for ourselves, rather than an impossible standard that we can never live up to. We see the true Son of God in the words of God himself. The first four or five times that Jesus is spoken to or about Uh, Starting with Jesus' own mother, when Jesus is in the temple, Jesus is spoken either to or about over and over and over in short statements uh, from Jesus' mother and here and in uh, later on in this passage and after this passage. And every single time it's going to have something to do with whose son he actually is. That's going to be a really important question in Luke. Whose son is he really? And we depend on the right answer to that question. Not only on believing the right answer, though we do, but we depend on Jesus being the right answer to that question. He must be, for us, the true Son of God. And he must be the new Son of Man. A true human being who is not merely a human being. And we see that here in verses 23 through 38. I do want to encourage you to take time when you get to a genealogy like this to read it slowly, to recognize that each name represents a real life, a real significant life, one that God considers to be significant. And, And I hope that as we look at the way this list functions here, you will you you you'll begin to see the significance of it for you for your need for your life <clears throat> we could ask lots and lots of questions about this genealogy as it compares to the genealogy in Matthew uh, if you've read both of them then you know that they are a little bit different from one another we could spend time on that i'm i'm not really going to if you have questions about it i would be glad to interact about those questions I know you don't all have those questions, and they're not the questions that Luke is trying to answer for us. So I want to focus mainly on what Luke is doing with putting this list here. One of the differences that I think we really should notice, and Luke would want us to notice, is that Matthew, in his genealogy, in his list of of ancestors of Jesus, goes back to Abraham. Because Matthew's point is, is to show specifically how Jesus connects himself to the life of the nation of Israel. So he traces Jesus back to the father of Israel. Luke would not deny that, but Luke has a different purpose, a distinct purpose. He wants us to know that Jesus is connecting himself to all of humanity. He is for Israel and he is for all of us. And so that's what Luke does. And he traces him all the way back to Adam. He starts, though, we're going we're gonna to look at that for just a minute, but he starts with a statement about Jesus in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Luke does so much here when he describes, jo- when he describes Jesus in this way, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Part of what he's doing is he is, he is we could say, giving a nod to the fact that Jesus is not merely the son of Joseph. 
that Jesus, as he's told us already, is born of a virgin, conceived by God himself, that in terms of Jesus' conception, God is actually his father. He also wants us to know that Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph. Partly supposed because, in a very real sense, he was legally the son of Joseph. So there is a physical connection in Jesus all the way back to Adam through Mary. There's a legal connection through adoption between Jesus all the way back to Adam. Jesus has entered into humanity in in, in every category, in every real category. It was also supposed, it was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph because Jesus was a good son. He was supposed to be the son of Joseph because he acted like it. In every way, he fulfilled his responsibility to Joseph as his son. He was the son of God. And there was never a time when he sort of played the son of God card with Joseph. And Joseph comes into Jesus' room early in the morning and says, we have a lot of work to do today. It's time for you to get up. And Jesus never rolled over and said, you know what? I'm also the son of God, so I want five more minutes. Never did that. He, he lived as the, the true son of Joseph, the good son of Joseph. So when people looked at him, they supposed him to be the son of Joseph. The problem was that they supposed him to be only the son of Joseph. And we needed him to be more. We needed him to be the one who could also fulfill what's in verse 38. He is supposed to be the son of Joseph, and then Luke traces that line through Heli, the father of Joseph, all the way down in verse 38 to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's unique language for Adam. That description of Adam is not used anywhere else in the Bible, where Adam is described as the son of God. Really unusual language. So what's going on? Well, Scripture has used similar language to describe Adam and his creation. When Adam was created, how was he made? He was made directly by God, and he was made in the image of God which sounds a lot like a a child being connected to his or her own father. That father is directly involved in the creation of that child, and that child in one way or another is made in the image of the father. And so was Adam. He was, in that sense, the son of God, made directly by him in his image. And then it broke, and Adam broke it. He, He broke that father-child relationship through his sin. And it needed to be restored. And none of the other sons could do it. There were special sons in this line. As you read through this genealogy, you might watch for who were the special sons? Who were the ones that we would have had the most hope in to restore the broken connection between the maker and those he has made in his own image? And none of them did it. None of them could. We needed somebody else who was connected to that line 
and who was not only connected to that line to reconnect that line to the father. <clears throat> and so when Luke says that Adam was the son of God, he doesn't only want us to think about Adam. He wants us to think about the one who is traced all the way forward from Adam, the new son of man, who is not only the son of man, but is also the true son of God. And who, because he is fully connected to the father, because his relationship with the father has never been broken, when that son comes and connects himself to our line, he's able to reconnect the whole line to the father. To the father in trusting relationship. Jesus is the son of God in an uncreated and an unbroken sense. And so he's the one who brings that connection back to the line of Adam. He, we've been told earlier in Luke, is born to you. Adam, he's born to you. Abraham, Israel, David, us, he's born to you. And he is born to us, we've been told in Luke, as a savior. The one who can fix what's broken. The relationship that's been broken between the one who made us and those who bear his now broken image. So we, we see the true son of God affirmed by God himself at his baptism as he associates with us in the water. We see the new son of man who is proven to be the, the kind of son that we need him to be connected with us and connected with God through his genealogy. And, and then we see him being the true son. And this is where we'll spend a little bit more of our time in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 4. He is the true son. We will see what it looks like for him to be the true son, to live as the true son in the most difficult of circumstances. Look at the setting, first of all, in verses 1 and 2. So Luke, in a sense, uh, picks up right where he left off at the end of verse 22. He, Jesus has been in the water, then he says, here's, here's how Jesus' sonship works, and then he picks that back up in chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I just want us to notice a few things about this setting, first of all, uh, before we look at what it was that Jesus faced in the wilderness on our behalf. First of all, what's he doing out in the wilderness? He's doing the same thing that he was doing in the water. He's joining us. He's meeting us in the desperate situation that our sin has created. When, when you look at Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness, for good reason, it looks a lot like Israel spending 40 years in the wilderness. The texts that Jesus will refer to in this passage refer back to that very situation, to Israel walking in the wilderness and the trouble that they faced, and what they were called to, and, and their own failure. He's coming out here in the wilderness for us, 
to find us. He's being the good older brother, seeking us where we are, and he's out here for us. He is out here to fulfill everything that a good brother is supposed to be. We'll also notice that when he comes, he is led by the Spirit, and he is full of the Spirit. We're going to see what it means for Jesus to live in a way that's full of the Spirit in the face of temptation. And what we're going to find that to mean is that Jesus responds with obedience to the Word of God because he trusts the heart of God. That's what it's going to look like for him to live full of the Spirit in the face of temptation. Obedience to God because he trusts the heart of God. We'll see that, I think, clearly in each of these temptations. We're going to see, we're going to see a few things that are similar in each one of these scenarios as we watch Jesus be tempted by the devil. First of all, each time, each time Jesus is tempted, we're going to see the devil tempt him with an actual need, with something that Jesus actually needs and with something that we actually need and therefore that we can't escape the desire for. We're going to see the devil use the need of provision and the need of, we could say, promotion, if this makes it easier to remember. There are other, other words as well, but we'll start them all with P. The need for provision and the need for promotion and the need for protection. Each one of those is something that God has made us for in a certain way. Each time Satan tempts Jesus, he is going to offer him an actual way of getting that need, an actual way of getting provision or promotion or protection, a way that is actually available. And each time we're going to see Jesus respond with the power of the word of God in basic obedience to the word of God. And that obedience is going to be built on trust. Trust in the heart of the father for the real meeting of that need. For real provision, for real promotion, for real protection that lasts. And he's not only going to trust the Father for those things on his own behalf. He's going to trust the Father for those things on our behalf. Because the way that he is going to get them is through death. Satan's going to offer him another way. Let's look at how Jesus, how, how the devil offers Jesus things that he was made for in very deceptive ways and how Jesus responds. We see the first one starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop there at verse 4. Very brief, isn't it? Two verses, and yet very powerful as well. If you are the Son of God, the devil here is not necessarily questioning, challenging whether Jesus is the Son of God. The way, that his, the way that his phrase is structured 
could be structured in such a way as to say, you know what, I'll give you that. Given that you are the son of God, command these stones, command this stone to become bread. He is tempting him to get provision, which is something that Jesus needs. He's tempting him to get bread, which is something that Jesus needs. But what he's saying is, get it on your own. If you are the son of God, then you have the power to command this stone to become bread. And what he says without saying it is, hey, use your power as the son of God to provide for your need outside of your relationship with the father. Use that power on your own. Use it without trusting your father. Provide for yourself on your own. If you're the son, then you have the authority to do it. Here you are, you're, you're, the, you're the, the son of God. He said that he delights in you, and where's the provision? Where's it at? Don't trust him. You can't trust him. Trust yourself, and you have the power to do it. So provide for yourself outside of your relationship of trust with your father. How does Jesus respond? <clears throat> Jesus brings it back to the context of trust in his father. Verse 4, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Every single time Jesus responds to the enemy, he responds to him with scripture, which is a, a very helpful example for us. And every time he does it here in Luke, he responds simply with a command in some form. Man shall not live by bread alone. We'll see those other, his other responses in the forms of commands as well. And so we might say, well, if we want to follow Jesus' example and be successful against temptation, then we ought to memorize the commands as well and replay them in our head. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing out in the wilderness. Man shall, man shall, man shall. You shall, you shall, you shall. Uh, Jesus demonstrates by the power of his response to the enemy that he not only knows the commandment, he knows its context. He knows where this came from in the first place. He knows the, the purpose of the commandment being given to us. He knows how it was given to God's people because he knows Deuteronomy. And he knows that Deuteronomy is more than commandment. So here he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. And in Deuteronomy 8, he quotes briefly from verse 3. That man does not live by bread alone. And he knows the context. And it's a context in which God shows himself to be a trustworthy father. I'm going to back up in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8. And this is what Moses says to the people. And he, that is God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know and your fathers did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. 
man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus knows what man shall live by. He will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when, when Jesus knows that, when Jesus lives by the word of God, that doesn't only mean that he's being directed by the word of God. God's word tells me what to do, so I'm going to do what God's word tells me what to do. Although that's true. And Jesus does that in a, in, a, in a beautifully simple way. But he's not only directed by the word of God. When he lives by the word of God, he's surviving by it. It is what keeps him alive. It, it keeps him connected in trust to the heart of his father. When he hears his father speak, whether it's in the form of commands or in the form of promises, he hears the voice that he trusts. And you've probably in conversations with people, uh, maybe, maybe it's been in, in, in a broader conversation with people, and you, you felt this even on a human level, probably. Maybe you've been in a meeting and people have been talking about a variety of things and, and maybe there's one person in that meeting that you just find to be really trustworthy when they speak. And everybody else has been sort of, sort of bantering around uh, what to do about a, about a given thing. And this person's sitting over in the corner and finally you see them sit up and you say, oh, good, Raleigh's about to talk. I remember that experience. You know what it's like when somebody trustworthy, that you found to be trustworthy, begins to speak. It's life-giving. You know that you can rely on it. You are not only directed by it, but in a, in, even in a small sense, you survive by it. And in a perfect sense, in an ultimate sense, that's what Jesus does. He survives by the Word of God. Because in the context, the Word of God has not only told the Israelites what to do, the word of God has made and fulfilled promises to them. They were provided for all through the wilderness so that they would know that God is a trustworthy father, that his trustworthiness does not change. Jesus is going to need that. He, he is unwilling to get provision for himself apart from relationship with the father now because he knows that the Father is going to provide permanently for him and permanently through him. And he knows that in order to do that, he's going to have to trust the Father all the way. All the way. So he's going to have to trust the Father even beyond this. And we'll see that as we look at the next two temptations. Next test is in verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What's the devil tempting him with? We could say promotion. We could say recognition. We could say being brought to a place of greater glory than you're experiencing right now. Every single one of us has an inescapable desire for that. 
an inescapable desire for recognition, an inescapable desire for somebody who matters to say to us, I accept you completely. And we look for that in so many destructive ways that it looks like it's just plain wrong. It's actually not. It is something that we were made for. And it's something that God provides for us in a way that's so right that it doesn't even often look like the thing we're looking for. It looks like something totally different. But it's real. And the devil offers it to Jesus. He says, I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, it was true that Jesus had the power to turn a stone into bread. And it's true in a certain sense that the kingdoms of the world are handed over into the hands of the devil. But it's only partly true. It's only temporarily true. And it's, o- it's only true in such a way that if you, if you get the authority of the kingdoms and you get the glory of the kingdoms from him, it's only temporary. And because it's only temporary, it ends in death. Jesus knows the real provision. Jesus knows what his father really offers uh, because he quotes from Deuteronomy once again. He quotes this time from Deuteronomy 6. I have it over here. Here's what he says to him. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13 which reads this way, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. And what's the context? Once again, here's the enemy offering Jesus the authority over the nations. You're you're, you're not going to have people in charge of you, you're going to be in charge. And when God gives the command, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, If we hear that by itself, what does it sound like? If that's all you ever hear, all you ever know about God, well, it kind of sounds like slavery. And I want freedom. I want something that matches the fact that I was made for some kind of significance. I don't just want to be some kind of a slave robot. So what's the context? Here's what God tells them before he gives the command starting in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 6. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You were in slavery to the nations. You were under their authority. And the way that God relates to you is that he brings you out of that slavery. He brings you into relationship with him. This is the heart that's behind the command. 
It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And this is the heart that Jesus is trusting the Father for. And he has to. He has to because the Father offers him authority over the nations. The Father offers him, in one sense, the same thing the devil is offering him, except the the devil can only offer it temporarily. And the Father is offering it permanently. It is necessary that the Christ should get it in a certain way. And what is it? Jesus is actually going to describe this to his disciples in, uh, after he has trusted his Father all the way. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The Father is going to give Jesus glory. He is going to give him promotion. And Jesus says, I'm trusting in my Father's greater authority. I'm trusting that he is going to make good on his promises. Jesus is tempted to get provision by his own power. He's tempted to get promotion by the power of the enemy. And now he's tempted to get protection in verses 9 through 12. And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The temptation each time is get it now. Get it now by your power. Get it now by my power. Get it now by forcing God to give it to you. Again, this is not in relationship with the Father. This is in manipulation of the Father. But it's always get it now. Get it with what's available to you right in front of you. This one might look a little bit unusual to us, this particular temptation. We can understand the draw of bread when we're really hungry. We can understand the draw of having authority over all the nations. In some ways, that sounds pretty appealing. What about here? What, what What is the enemy doing with Jesus when he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he tells him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. It's a little bit harder. I'm, I'm terribly afraid of heights. So it's especially hard for me to see the appeal here. Like I'll take the bread, I'll take the glory, but I'm not going to jump. Maybe an adrenaline junkie will be like, yes, God's going to catch me. I don't think that's what the devil is about here. It's not what the temp- temptation is about. We long for permanence. We long for protection. We long to know that we are going to be okay long-term. And the devil says, as it were, Jesus, you're the son of God, force your father to prove it. He's told you that he would. And the devil actually uses the Bible uh, to make his argument. And when he uses the Bible to make his argument, he actually quotes it accurately. He's not changing words when he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus knows that what, he, that, that what the devil is doing is he's taking these words accurately quoted out of their context. But he's not particularly interested in arguing with the devil about that. He goes straight to the word of God. He goes straight to simple obedience out of trust in the heart of the Father. And this time he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 as well. This time, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When Jesus quotes that, what he brings to mind, because it's what Moses brings to mind when he says it, is the people of God in the wilderness saying, we're about to die and we're not okay with that. And we're not okay with what God is doing with us here. And they're putting God to the test. Moses is referring back to the events that happen in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The people are in the wilderness. They don't have any water in this case. And so they quarrel with Moses. And they, they come to Moses and say, give us water to drink. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why is it that you are demanding right now that God show that he's going to give you the life he's already promised you? And, and then we see the heart that's behind their quarreling in verse 7. This big question. This isn't really about the fact that we feel really thirsty. This is about the fact that we don't yet trust God to give us the life he's promised. Exodus 17, verse 7, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? We want him to prove it. We want him to prove it to us. We want him to give us not only water, but we want him to give us some proof that he's actually with us. And the devil says to Jesus here, make God give it to you. He's actually promised in his word that he would. And Jesus says, no, first of all, there's a command not to do it. And behind the command is the context in which God has already demonstrated himself to be completely trustworthy. Jesus says, I'm trusting my father for greater provision, for more permanent provision. I'm trusting him for eternal protection. I'm, the devil, as it were, says to Jesus, trust him to, to force him to get you out of death. Jump and make him save you from death. And Jesus says, I'm going to trust him not only for escape from death, I'm going to trust him all the way through death. The kind of protection Jesus is trusting the Father for is greater. Protection that goes all the way through death. And, and whether literal or figurative, isn't that what's really at work in the deepest of our own temptations? Maybe you're in uh, a very, very difficult marriage that you can't get out of because, uh, because your husband or your wife is not unfaithful, is not abusive, is still sticking around, uh, but maybe he's just really embarrassing. Maybe he makes some decisions that make life really hard for you. And yet you know 
that the the only way to remove yourself from that really, really hard situation would be to rebel against the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, maybe you're in a relationship with, uh, with, with a child, and you're, you're really, really tempted to become abusive with that child. You're tempted to skip over the clear command, parents, train up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and instead to say, that's not working. I have to come up with something else on my own. Otherwise, we're just facing death here. And, and the only option in those kinds of temptations, when we're faced with something that feels like death, we, we, we don't have any practical solution that we can come up with. The only option that we have is to trust the Father, not only to deliver us from death, but sometimes to deliver us all the way through it. Can we trust the Father to do that? Jesus did. He did it as an example for us, and he did it to bring us into a place of that trust. We can trust the heart of the Father, not only because we see it modeled in Jesus, but because we see it expressed to us in Jesus. We're tempted as parents sometimes to give the, the, the misbehaving child, to give that child the good child, but it doesn't happen in a way that repairs the relationship. The father, in a much better way, gave us the good child. He gave us that child to fulfill all of his requirements for us, to overcome temptation for us, to overcome the enemy for us, to do what Psalm 91 promises in context. The devil very conveniently leaves this out. Verse 10 of Psalm 91 says, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 13, You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And because Jesus takes Psalm 91 in context and the commands of Deuteronomy 6 and 8 in context, because he trusts the heart of the Father, he overcomes the enemy on our behalf. And he shows us how to do it. He puts us into a place where the Father can look at us and say, this is my beloved Son. And so to us, you... With you, I am well pleased. I am well pleased with you on his account. You are now in a place where you are completely safe, where you can completely trust my heart for you. And by that trust, then we can face the same kinds of temptations. The temptation to say, I'm going to try to get provision by my own power alone, apart from relationship with the Father. I'm going to try to promote myself maybe even with the help of the enemy, perhaps without knowing it, but I'm going to do it apart from my relationship with my father. I'm going to try to pursue permanence. I'm going to try to get the protection that I need on my own, apart from relationship with the father. Jesus did it with the father, and he did it for us, so that now we can follow him 
into that promise we read earlier that no temptation has come upon you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. The way of escape that comes from trusting the heart of the Father that is modeled and fulfilled for us in the heart of the good Son who has come for us. Father, would, would you help us to know your word well? To know not only what you've commanded us with, but the heart behind the commands, the heart that is perfectly expressed in the fulfillment of your word in your Son. Father, we pray that your Spirit would lead us into that kind of trusting obedience that Christ has led the way for. We pray this in Jesus' name.